This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there. Happy Friday afternoon to you. Good to have you along today. This hour, after half past 12 today, you're going to catch up with a young couple who always dreamed of owning their own farm, and you know what? Now they do. It has taken them about a decade to get there, but they've now ticked that box off. You will find out how they did it a little later this hour. Also today and shortly, it does sound like Indonesia may soon lift its suspension on importing cattle from some Australian export facilities. Uh, A lot of talk in the industry this afternoon, a few meetings going on. There's no official word at this stage, but you'll hear the very latest here on the Country Hour shortly. It is six past 12 on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. WA Meat Processor V&V Walsh is going to increase its lamb processing numbers by 5,000 head a week, a production increase of close to 25% and it all starts tomorrow. The Bunbury-based processor says the move to a a six-day-a-week processing schedule for most weeks up until Christmas, is to try and help clear the backlog of lambs awaiting processing here in WA. Brent Dancer is the General Manager of V&V Walsh. Brent, what's prompted this decision? Yeah, look, um, the the real prompt is very much uh, listening to our producers and, and hearing the concerns in the market around new season lamb coming soon and the oversupply that we're seeing out of the, the COVID bubble that we experienced over the last 12 months. And we're sort of really trying to assist our producers in, in getting through these lambs before the new season start is, is the main driver. Now, the panel that's assessing the best way to transition out of the live sheep trade is expected to hand its plan to the federal government this month at the end of the month. Is this announcement from VNV Walsh at all time to coincide with the delivery of that plan? No, look, not, not at all. Um, we, we've certainly, as part of the overall process that everyone's been involved in, sort of been speaking with the panel. But no, th- this decision is very much based on um, where the, the WA market is just at the moment in terms of old season lambs rolling into the new season. And we've also had to, we, we've had some real challenges with export markets over the last two or three months with export prices actually dropping quicker than the livestock price, um, believe it or not. And so, We've had that real challenge about being able to switch back from mutton to lamb, um, but we're, we're making, although not financial decision, where it's not in our best interest, um, it's in the best interest of our producers to really shift back to lamb between now and Christmas to really help them with this, this backlog of supply. Can you give us a sense of how that price has dropped back for you? So we've seen drops of you know, through some of those key periods over the last few months where prices for certain cuts were dropping by more than a dollar US a kilo over a week, two-week period. So in terms of percentage drops, it was a huge, we're talking sometimes, you know, 10, 20% drops in, in days on prices that have been locked in three and four weeks earlier. And so how can you suddenly do this, make this decision now to increase that processing capacity? Because there has been such a, a backlog of, of um, product in store and cold store for so long now. Yeah, look, it, it's, it's a real challenge and there's still pinch points along the, the supply chain for us to get this to market. We've been working with a, a lot of our key stakeholders to ensure that we've got the ability to get this to market at the right times. Um, we are going to have to increase our holding capacity through a period of time and 
you know, we've got a strategic cold store being built at the moment deliberately to try and increase that capacity uh, within the network. But for us, it's really about lining up our, our export customers um, and also our staff to ensure that we've got the capacity to increase through these Sunday productions um, between now and Christmas. And what are the target markets for these lambs? Uh, a good cross-section. Uh, a good chunk will be still going through into, into the Chinese market but we're really trying to open up new markets to create the, the, the bigger demand for WA uh, lamb. So the Middle East is another key market for us that we're growing. And then looking at markets like Singapore and Hong Kong uh, and Southeast Asia for some of those really uh, high-end priority key cuts, while we're still having challenges with the US, which is still really in a, a depressionary uh, situation where the US normally at this time of year would be kicking for us. At the moment, it's, it's a really poor market for everyone. And how will that lamb-mutton ratio change? Yeah, probably at the moment we're probably still processing 25-30% of our total production being mutton. Uh, we're going to actually swing that back to be almost 100%, 100% lamb uh, to help through this, uh, this period between now and the, and the new seasons coming on. And as you said, I mean, at, at the moment there's more demand for mutton, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of the lamb price, it's 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 very much a, still a real struggle to make it, uh, it all work. Um, so mutton uh, is definitely more preferred from a financial point of view, but um, but lamb is obviously where our pressure point is for our producers and that's where we need to be prioritising uh, as part of the bigger picture. So the plan is to increase lamb processing numbers by 5,000 lambs a week. In, in percentage terms, what does that increase represent? Yeah, that'll be closer to a 25% increase in overall production. We're producing around that sort of 20,000 to 22,000 on a normal week. Um, so to, to jump up to 25,000 would be the best part of a, a 20 to 25% increase for us. Uh, one of the big challenges for quite a few years now has been staff. How are you managing that? Touch wood. Um, look, we're, we've been doing a lot of work around that over the last 12, 18 months and, and we're tracking okay. Constant challenges, of course, uh, as everyone is feeling across all industries. Um, but we've done a lot of work around uh, bringing some skilled Filipino workers in, as well as um, being a big part of the PALM scheme uh, that the federal government have set up. And obviously anywhere we can through local industry schools, we're down at the Cundinan Ag School today, speaking to, to students about our sector and, and opportunities. So we're really out there trying to spread our, the knowledge as far as we can. And obviously any, any listeners that are keen to get in the industry or looking for a job, we've got plenty happening at uh, VNB Walsh for you as well. On the Country Hour, catching up with Brent Dancer from VNV Walsh this afternoon, the meat processing facility based at Bunbury in WA's southwest, and the announcement today that the processor is going to increase its lamb processing numbers by 5,000 lambs a week. Brent, how strategic is the decision to increase capacity now when you know that farmers are desperate to move lambs? There's this backlog of last season lambs there's more to come on shortly and you can almost name your price for livestock yeah obviously it is it's it's critically strategic for the for the whole industry really um i think um as you sort of touched on new season lamb drop is, is coming and, and we know that they're all starting to come on soon uh, and it's been unfortunately a bit of a drier winter than everyone was hoping for and so there is concerns through different pockets of the, of the state around water and feed supply so I think when you talk strategic, it, it's very much more around the whole industry. Um, you know, producers are our lifeblood and without producers, the industry stops. So we need to be all working together around these challenges and, and trying to find solutions for everyone. What price will you be offering producers for lamb? At the moment, the, the, we'll be at the market price of, as where, the, where it sits in WA across all of our processes. So it's been sitting around that sort of mid $4 mark. 
we're actually still higher than the east coast so unfortunately the eastern seaboard prices dropped even lower there they're indicated sitting around the four dollar twenty down to almost four dollar mark um so there is concerns that um the east coast has even dropped further based on the export pressures but it'll be at the moment it will, will meet the market where where everyone else is how unusual is the situation that the industry is dealing with right now brent I, I really do think it's a one-off. Um, we are really coming out of the back end of, a, of, an, of what I consider a COVID bubble. Um, this is an effect of, you know, processing capacity through the spring flush last year, where right across the country, uh, as every industry was, labour was a real issue. And so, uh, generally, in this time of year, you know, some of the bigger processes in, in the state are generally having a, a maintenance shutdown um, through this period. And and at times we've actually struggled to operate five days a week because there hasn't been enough supply of, of lamb in the market before the spring flush comes. So historically, we'd be seeing prices increase through winter. Uh, this year, I, I really see this as a bit of a once-off and a very odd situation to be sort of working our way through. But again, as a, a full industry, we need to be finding the solutions to get through this one to ensure that farmers uh, continue in the industry and, and continue to uh, hold lamb on, on farm. Brent Dancer here on the Country Out today from V&V Walsh, just looking at increasing lamb processing numbers by 5,000 lambs a week. Brent, the other big news in the last couple of weeks has been this decision by the Australian government to deny Qatar Airways more flights into Australia in the national interest, a decision that's been criticised by competitors, other businesses, the federal opposition, and now uh, there's going to be a parliamentary inquiry. Earlier in the week, we also heard from WA Premier Roger Cook, also critical of the federal government for blocking Qatar Airways' bid to increase the number of flights it operates to Australia. And he was highlighting the important trade opportunity that these flights represent with products in the going in the cargo holds. What would an increase in those flights mean to V&V Walsh? Yeah, it would be a, a huge boost to our industry as a whole, us included. What people don't realise is that um, WA has struggled to entice general air freight capacity back to the state post-COVID, uh, whether it's Qatar, Etihad, Emirates, just freight capacity in general is, is lacking. And so across the ag sector, um, not just lamb, but across the ag in general, um, getting that additional capacity means more access to markets at a price make us more competitive on the export markets even compared to Eastern States competitors. You know, what people don't realise at the moment is that the price to ship a, uh, a chilled lamb carcass from WA to Dubai is still running at about a dollar a kilo more expensive than coming out of Melbourne, even though we're four hours closer. So that, that equates to a $20 a carcass disadvantage before we even to start discussing with customers. So by having more flights, by having better rates, we'll certainly open up trade and, and get more volumes moving for sure. So are you surprised by that? decision by the federal government to knock back those extra flights, considering the policy is to end the live sheep trade and to look for other alternative markets? Yeah, look, uh, the decision for the, 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 or their reasons for the decision, um, I guess we'll, we'll hear more in the, in the coming days and weeks. Um, but certainly, given the discussions that have been had, uh, I would see it as a, a certainly a positive to be creating more capacity. So I would hope that if not now, in, in the short term and, and longer term, they're, they're certainly looking at ways to increase capacity in WA especially, um, not to forget about us as the, the, the people on the West um, and not just keep talking about the Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane airports, but how are we enticing capacity back to WA airports as well. Can you give us the detail on the type of product you're sending into that market, that Middle East market? 
Yeah, so it's very much um, between our various markets, so the Middle East, they're very much looking for that lighter uh, lamb carcass and, and they really do enjoy actually our, our longer, skinnier merino type article. Um, so between both the Middle East and Chinese markets, that they really enjoy and um, prefer often our Western Australian lamb because uh, it is a, a leaner article to what is now on the west on the east coast which can sometimes average up to sort of 50 kilos of lamb versus 22 kilos in on the west coast so is that a a, a lamb or a product that would have normally gone on the, the live export ships yeah absolutely um so that lighter article merino weather type article that is historically going under on the live ships is is the sort of market or the article that we're starting to really grow through those middle eastern and chinese markets absolutely mm. well there are still flights going to qatar uh, is, how many how many flights are going out of Western Australia, out of Perth? So unfortunately at the moment, uh, both Qatar and Emirates are actually only flying once a day. So pre-COVID, they were flying two and three times a day. Uh, but at the moment, they're unfortunately only flying uh, once a day uh, out, of w, out of WA. And how many extra do you need then? Oh, ideally, having both carriers flying at least twice to three times a day would be back to historical levels. Um, but the challenge we're going to have is leading into the summer period, you know, our friends that are in the avocado industry are going to also be requiring that space. So um, we're, we're going to be challenged on existing capacity across multiple parts of the ag sector uh, leading into the spring summer period. Yeah, so you're competing against each other. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be competing against each other and, and, and no doubt probably losing space um, through this period because of um, one being prioritised over the other. And, you know, given the, the type of nature of the animal and the product, um, generally we've been losing that space, um, but it is, it's going to be a competitive uh, environment over these coming month or two. Brent, really great to talk to you today. Thank you so much. No problems. Thanks very much for your time. Brent Dancer, he's the general manager of V&V Walsh, the meat processor based at Bunbury in the state's southwest. 19 past 12, Stephen Bolt is a Corrigan sheep farmer and heads up the Livestock Collective and he's pleased to hear V&V Walsh's plans to increase lamb processing in the state. He says WA farmers are feeling a lot of pressure carrying extra stock at the moment and anything to ease that squeeze is very welcome. Yeah, look, obviously, from, you know, growers' point of view, industry point of view, it's extremely welcome. We know that we're facing a huge amount of backlog of sheep that as we've had in place for quite a while. But compounding this is, you know, the poor season in so much of the north and east of the wheat belt. Growers are looking for any opportunity to uh, turn off stock, particularly around, you know, we've got high grain prices as well. So feedlotting's not going to be an option especially where we've seen the price of sheep go to. V&V says it will increase its lamb processing by about 5,000 a week. Is that enough, do you think, when you look at the amount of sheep that are still on farm when growers would prefer them not to be? Yeah, and I, I suppose it's, you know, absolutely it'll help anything, any increase in, in capacity for the for the state flock will help in that processing sector or uh, again, once the boats come on board, any increase in capacity will be welcome. You know, we've had a, reports of very good lambing around the state once again this year. So obviously there's uh, going to be a large number of lambs to get through. So, yeah, definitely welcome. Does it restore a bit of confidence? Can we take that out of it? Look, it, it's definitely a positive, but it clearly shows that government intervention into our industry where we've seen right from the point of their announcement of shutting down the, the live export trade, 
uh, or a phase out, you know, it's had a direct impact. And, you know, once again, as growers, we bear the brunt of that decision. So, yeah, look, it, it's certainly challenging and everyone knows the, certainly the challenges that are in front of us, but it's definitely welcome for industry. Speaking of government, you've just returned from Canberra. You were part of a delegation that travelled east to meet with ministers um, and other government leaders, really just to talk about the implications of the federal government's planned live export shutdown. How did that series of meetings that you had in Canberra go? It was really well received. So, you know, going from a real grassroots level, um, you know, having growers, having you know, livestock transporters, having shearing industry represented. Uh, we were able to take the meetings back to that real impact level that it's going to have in our communities, so in the individual regions, taking away that risk management for, for so many people, um, the employment that we provide throughout the livestock industry. So, you know, we met with, you know, members of all parties, both House of Reps and, and Senate. So, yeah, really constructive, I think, was what we'd take away from those meetings. There is conversation at the moment, Stephen, about potential welfare issues that are coming for people that are carrying extra stock on farm. You've touched on the, the cost of feedlotting. It's dry in the north and the east of the wheat belt. There is a real concern about some of the extra sheep that are on properties at the moment. Were you able to convey that welfare problem that is on people's minds to Murray Watt? Yeah, look, that was definitely one of the key issues I raised with Murray Watt is the impact that this is having on growers now. You know, we're not even to announcement of of what that phase out will look like, but it's already impacting on people. From the day he announced that they were going to go ahead with this policy, it has started to have an impact on on our industry and particularly around growers, the, the stress of, you know, having sheep that we cannot shift the stress around the welfare of the sheep on farm. So he acknowledged that, that there's certainly definitely a severe impact and particularly around mental health and acknowledged that uh, it was a result of the announcement by his government. So acknowledging it, that was that was what you got out of it. You felt that you were heard. Yeah, I think he's certainly been made aware, acknowledged that, mm. you know, the harm that this is causing... Uh, you know, the impact it's having on farms. So the discussions with Murray uh, was was certainly around that. He certainly said that, again, as he has in the media spoke about, you know, boy, he took this to two elections, but he did acknowledge that you know, the industry has made huge improvements in animal welfare. And, you know, for us, that's why the policy, you know, needs to be reviewed and changed because, you know, the industry is, the science doesn't support the decision that the Labor government are trying to implement. Corrigan Farmer, Stephen Bolt with Joe Prendergast. 24 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Well, it sounds like Indonesia may soon lift its suspension on importing cattle from some Australian export facilities. Trade has been at a near standstill since late July after Indonesia notified our federal government that some Australian cattle tested positive for lumpy skin disease upon arrival. 
Australia's chief vet claims all testing shows there is no sign of the disease here in Australia. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has raised the matter with Indonesia's President Joko Widodo. And a spokesperson for the Australian government has told the ABC a formal agreement hasn't been reached yet but the government is buoyed by positive discussions in recent days. Bron Christensen is the new CEO of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association. Bron, what are your thoughts on these reports coming through? Oh, Belinda, we're taking a lot of, I suppose, joy in these reports and a lot of um, we're very encouraged by them. I think that uh, we're at the point where everyone's at the table and is, is keen to move forward with this is, um, yeah, something that we can all take comfort in. So what is the latest? Have you heard anything about an official lifting of the trade suspension? Not yet, only that it's uh, moving in a positive direction and that final negotiations will be going on this afternoon and this evening, uh, Indonesian time to, I guess, nut out all the details. So we're yet to see what those points will be. So are you hopeful that some sort of official decision will be announced later today? Oh, we are very hopeful that there will be an official decision. I think the the longer it goes on, um, uh, sort of the more detrimental it will be to the industry. So we're very hopeful that uh, Beth and her team will be um, bringing this to conclusion as soon as possible uh, with a good outcome for both the Indonesians and the Australian livestock exporters. Now, it's been reported in the Australian newspaper today that the two countries might be trying to come to some sort of agreement on mutually acceptable testing methods for lumpy Mm -hmm. skin disease. And the article says Indonesia's quarantine chief wants to send his own veterinary delegation to Australia to jointly inspect cattle at the suspended yards. What do you make of that? Oh, look, I think that's a positive one. Again, it depends. The devil is always in the detail where if we're talking an inspection of every single animal, um, it's going to add to cost, it's going to add to time. If we're talking about an inspection, um, overarching inspection, so I guess to prove the efficacy of the testing process, I'm sure that uh, the yards and the exporters would need to speak for themselves, but uh, we'd be quite confident that would be something that would be acceptable as long as it doesn't increase the cost or the time or interfere with the processing of those animals uh, that makes the the industry then unviable. And I guess that's where we're putting our faith and uh, we have it, certainly in the team that's over there at the moment. They know the live export industry, they know the price points, they know the timeframes, so we're quite confident that they'll be negotiating for a resolution that uh, will allow trade to continue. But with that suggestion of sending, you know, an Indonesian sort of inspection team over here, doesn't that mean there are a few trust issues that need to be resolved? Oh, look, I think it's uh, it's probably, as you can see from that Sydney, um, uh, from that Australian article, it's very much a um, Australia says, well, we're confident in our testing and Indonesia's saying they're confident in their testing. So it's just a matter, I guess, of reinforcing Uh, for each party, the efficacy of the testing that's actually happening on site in their own country. So uh, I don't know if it's trust. I think it's just um, maybe uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and and making sure that everyone's comfortable with the other's regime. What did you think when Indonesia imposed these suspensions when it itself already has lumpy skin disease? Oh, look, I can't speak on behalf of the, uh, the Indonesian uh, markets or the, the governments or the exporters uh, uh, or the importers there. But uh, but did you have a raised I, eyebrow considering they've already got the disease in their own country? 
Uh, look, I, I suppose trade negotiations are, are well above my pay grade, I must admit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it's probably something that uh, I, I suppose wasn't expected. We didn't see it coming, certainly, but uh, we're very pleased that uh, it's looking at resolution now. And if the suspension is lifted, say if we get an announcement, an official announcement later today, how quickly could cattle get loaded from the Kimberley? I'm told exceptionally uh, quickly. We know that there's uh, there's cattle in holding paddocks all the way around Broome at the moment. That uh, and there's quite a few that would actually be coming into Broome. Um, in, it would have been coming in for loading on Saturday anyway. I believe from the exporters, they're told that they can um, get vessels underway quite quickly. So I would think it'll be resuming as soon as logistically possible. And how important is it for? producers across the region, across the north, that that trade commences as quickly as possible? Oh, it's exceptionally important. We've got a, a, approximately here in Western Australia, we've got around about 50,000 animals that will be due to go and we're going into, we're obviously in the middle of our dry time here and people have budgeted that, that um, the animals will be going for their feed. Uh, we then go into the wet season, so if they don't come off the property during, uh, if they're not able to get off the property now, they're there for the wet season, they can't get out. So uh, yeah, for animal welfare, and that's primarily everyone's first concern, animal welfare that uh, uh, there could be big issues if we're keeping if we're keeping cattle on the paddocks for for the length of time or the number of cattle on the paddocks that uh, if we can't get a market for them. And it's only I mean the window between now and the start of the wet season is about eightish weeks. And as you said, it's around about the estimates are fifty thousand cattle head of cattle mm-hmm. across the Kimberley and the Pilbara. Is that possible to get them out in that time frame? I'm assured by the exporters it is. Okay, good to hear. And um, thank you for your time on the country hour today. Appreciate it, Bron. That's lovely. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you. That is Bron Christensen, and Bron is the new Chief Executive Officer of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association. Just with the very latest on the talk at the moment that Indonesia may soon lift its suspension on importing cattle from some Australian export facilities. No official word at this stage, but talks continue uh, today. It is half past 12 here on The Country. Our Jonathan Beale is in the studio. What's in the headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. Homicide detectives say it's too early to know the exact circumstances surrounding the death of a 46-year-old collie woman yesterday. The woman was taken to hospital with unexplained injuries yesterday morning but could not be saved. A 46-year-old man has been taken into custody but no charges have been laid. The Prime Minister has emphasised that Australia backs an international ruling which rejected China's claim over parts of the South China Sea. There have been a series of encounters between Filipino and Chinese vessels in disputed parts of the sea in recent weeks. Anthony Albanese is in the capital, Manila, for meetings with the President of the Philippines, Bongbong Marcos. And the opposition leader in the Senate, Simon Birmingham, has paid tribute to his outgoing colleague, Maurice Payne. In a statement, Senator Payne says she will call time on her 26-year career in federal politics at the end of the month. She says... Uh, Rather, Senator Birmingham says whoever replaces Senator Payne in the upper house will have big shoes to fill. More news, Belinda, at one. Jonathan, thank you so much for the update. 28 to 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Just before the news at one, uh, heading off to find out the results of the wool market, Danny Burkett will be along and he'll go through the sales here in the West and in the East this week. And... Also, earlier in the hour, just talking about 
uh, V&V Walsh, one of the meat processors here in Western Australia, going to be increasing the processing of lamb uh, starting tomorrow. So an extra 5,000 lambs being processed. And Brent Dancer from V&V Walsh was saying it'd be great if there were more flights going to the Middle East to get that opportunity to even export more of their product into that market, which is growing. There's a lot of potential there. And in response to that, Peter Rundle picking up on that point, it's ironic that Murray Watt is attempting to ban live sheep exports and saying we need to do more processing and send more chilled product. At the same time, his government can't work it out in relation to Qatar Airways, which would be one of the main transporters of chilled air product to the Middle East. Thanks for that, Peter. The text is 0448 922 604. 27 to 1. Bob Tarr is here from the Bureau of Meteorology. How's it looking across the Southwest Land Division, Bob? Yeah, uh, so really um, pretty warm conditions for many areas. Uh, a lot of places would uh, be noticeably warmer today with winds broadly out of the northeast, so uh, that is bringing some warmer air down from the north today. Uh, There's trough off the west coast. That trough is going to move across the west coast during uh, Saturday morning, and then uh, that'll be trailed by a pretty weak front that will move across the southwest corner. So all in all, the rainfall is likely to be generally to the south and west of a line from about Calberry to Esperance. Uh, And for the most part, the falls from uh, the combination of that trough and front will be probably uh, about one to five mils. Uh, But there is a chance of some thunderstorms across uh, mainly the Midwest, uh, the um, Perth area to the north of Perth, and then uh, extending out through the western wheat belt. Uh, and we could see up to about uh, 10 to 15 mils in, in very isolated locations if there are some thunderstorms associated with that. Uh, then that uh, front will contract away to the southeast on Sunday. We will have that trough still lingering through central parts of the state, so there is some potential that there could be some dry thunderstorms, although those will mostly be out over the gold fields, uh, possibly to the east of Esperance in the southwest land division, uh, and then otherwise maybe just a slight chance of a shower about the southwest capes, but otherwise dry weather throughout on Sunday, and again on Monday, uh, dry weather throughout the region. And then on Tuesday, we'll have a weakening cold front approaching the lower west coast uh, with a few showers mainly across the southwest corner. Uh, And then on Wednesday, we expect to see a moderate to strong front crossing the west coast and then extending inland. Uh, And we could see uh, there's some significant differences in the model guidance with that front. Uh, The stronger of the models would indicate that the southwest corner could see maybe up to about uh, 30 to 50 mils, but the the weaker models would say only about 10 or 15. And and similar story for inland parts where uh, the weaker of the systems would be only bringing pretty light amounts through the uh, eastern parts of the southwest land division, including the wheat belt. Uh, But the stronger models might say that you would get anywhere from about 5 to 15 mils through inland parts. So um, we'll keep you updated as that uh, develops. But yeah, it looks like the most significant system is going to be on Wednesday and into early Thursday across the region. And what's the story across the north and eastern parts? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, northern parts uh, generally dry across the next week. We have a um, ridge that's weakening over the region. So uh, for the most part, winds will be lighter across northern areas during the weekend, but then starting to freshen up again uh, during the early part of next week, over the especially over the Kimberley and uh, north interior. Uh, over eastern parts of the state, uh, dry weather expected to prevail through the weekend, although some high-based thunderstorms possible across the uh, eastern gold fields and into the Eucla on Sunday. Uh, and that could be associated with some, um, as I said, dry lightning uh, through that region and then uh, likely to see the return of dry weather on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, no thunderstorms expected then but then um, potentially depending on the strength of that front there is some likelihood that uh, thunderstorms could develop anywhere from uh, the inland gas coin right through the um, gold fields on Wednesday and also the uh, Esperance region uh, and depending on whether that front's quite strong, uh, it could be quite windy and warm through that region. So that would uh, raise a bushfire risk on Wednesday. So there could be some um, some chance of thunderstorms through that region. So keep an eye out uh, as the time gets closer. It uh, could be a bit of a fire danger concern on Wednesday. Have we got any frost concerns over the next few days at all? Uh, no, not really. Maybe just light frost in the Euclid, but this um, cold front that's passing tomorrow is quite weak. Um, and then even the next front, the, it looks like there's going to be a pretty broad westerly flow. There's not a real strong cold pool coming in behind it. So um, the, the min temperatures uh, even behind this cold front, even if it's a pretty strong front, uh, certainly don't look to be cold on, on Thursday or Friday or, or even next Saturday. Okay. Uh, warnings this afternoon. Uh, so we only have uh, warnings about coastal areas for tomorrow, uh, Lewin Coast, Esperance Coast, and Euclid Coast. No other warnings for the rest of the state. Great. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. 22 to 1. Weatherwally says, Jack F. Snuck back into Salmon Gums, Newtigate, Cunderdon and Wandering last night. Luckily, only a brief fleeting visit around sunrise. Only deep valley areas at risk. Let's hope it's the last time he breaches bomb security and visits before crops are ripe. The text, if you want to have your say too, 0448-922-604. And I should mention that there wasn't any rain across Western Australia in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Danny Burkett along just before the news at one going through this week's wool market results and two pet dogs have now been put down after they killed at least 59 sheep and some other domesticated animals in the Shire of Collie, 200 kilometres southeast of Perth. Now, you might remember hearing about this attack here on the Country Hours about a, a week or so ago. Hobby farmer Rodney Swan has lived in Collie for 68 years. He has an eight-hectare property and says he's glad the dogs were dealt with because they were dangerous. And a warning, his description of what he believes the dogs did to his sheep is a little gruesome. I just woke up in the morning and seen something floating in the dam and I got the binoculars and I looked and there was dead sheep everywhere. Some of them weren't dead, but I had to put them down, but there was just sheep everywhere. So I just went and got the gun. I've seen a dog. So I went and got the gun and went up there and tried to shoot one of the dogs, but they just took off. Then I had to go around and put them all down. In the end, there was 59 dead sheep or ewes and lambs and... When you found the sheep, was it sort of a grisly scene? Was it quite, um, had the dogs done a lot of damage? Yeah, yep. The faces ripped from them and 
broken legs and, you know, just unbelievable what damage a couple of dogs can do. Some of that were floating in the dam. They, I think they just drowned in the dam trying to get away from them. Some of the sheep were half in the dam, half out. And out of all of them, there was only two that could stand up. The rest were laying there, you know, and walk up there with a gun and put the gun between their eyes and you know, they just look at you and, you know, you, you feel them kind of say, pull that bloody trigger, you know, to, to put them out of their misery, the poor buggers. Did you get any indication as to what breed the dogs were? No, I don't know what the breed was, but they actually come running up towards me. I stand behind the gate. So I was trying to get a shot at them, but they were just too quick. Then I crashed down behind the gate because I, I feared for my own safety. Everything happened just that quick. I, I put a shot off, but I, I missed, you know. Did, how close did they get? Within me, about metre and a half. I'm just glad I wasn't actually in the paddock. And then uh, down the road, there was the dogs attacked more animals? Yeah, two mornings later, the same dogs killed uh, 19 all up. Well, I didn't actually kill them all, but what ones weren't killed, I had to go. I went down and put them out of their misery as well. He had two left over. Have you ever seen something like this before? No, the most I've ever lost before was 17. I've lost sixes and twos and fours and... But I haven't had any trouble for about six years, apart from foxes, but not with dogs. So, you know, that must have been pretty difficult for you dealing with this situation? Yeah, it was. It was really upsetting. One thing that was really upsetting mostly, I think, was all the little kids in... As I live on one side of the road and there's towns on the other side and all the little kids up there used to come down in their pram, in the prams with their mothers to see the chooks and the emu and... Some of them kids are six years old now and, you know, from what I've heard, the mothers, even now the kids are still upset about the emu. That, that really rocked me. The Shire says it's dealt with the animals now. Um, they, they've they reported that news back to you. You must be happy that there's some sort of resolution? Yeah, I haven't actually spoken to the Shire, only the Shire Ranger. But at least I know that. And apparently there's been ducks killed and there's been... Pet rabbits and that being killed too. I think it's the same dogs, but um, at least them dogs won't kill anymore. Can you sort of um, describe to me the community sentiment, I guess, like while this was going on, were people concerned? Yeah, there were. Even the people that just got a few sheep kind of wondering who's next, you know, how many, <laughs> who's going to wake up in the morning and all their sheep are dead and, yeah. Like I was talking to a bloke yesterday, he said, well, I don't have to lay in bed worrying about if my sheep are going to get attacked tonight, he's only got five or six. You know, he said, it won't be them dogs anyway. I guess, do you reckon there's a message for the public there? Like, you know, if you're not careful, uh, dogs can do some pretty significant damage. I don't think people realise how much damage the dogs can actually do. You know, it's just it's just incredible, you know. I mean... They pull you or me down, you know, I, I, I don't know you, I don't know the size of you, but I don't care if you're seven foot tall, them two would pull you down and kill you, you know, just the damage what I've seen do to the sheep. Collie hobby farmer Rodney Swan speaking to Tom Robinson about the two dogs that killed some of his sheep. Both dogs were surrendered by the dog owner and have been put down. The Shire says rangers issued fines to the dog owners for all the offences. 16 to 1. 
And in some trade news, Premier Roger Cook has just announced the next joint meeting of the Australia-Korea Business Council and the Korea-Australia Business Council will be held in Perth for the very first time next year. South Korea is seen as an important trading partner for Australia with relationships already existing in the iron ore, steelmaking and lithium processing spaces. Roger Cook travelled to Seoul in South Korea for the first time as Premier to make the announcement today. The acting chair of the Australia-Korea Business Council, John Walker, says he's thrilled the joint meeting will be in Perth for the first time in 2024. Quarter to one here on the Country Hour. And the dream for Cody and Jess Schilling has always been to own their own farm. Neither of them are from farming families, so they spent about a decade working on other people's farms and leasing properties. But about a year ago, they finally bought their own cattle farm at Calgon near Albany. Cody says it is still surreal to think that they are now genuine farmers. It's a little bit overwhelming at times. We have chipped away and chipped away. Jess and I were only speaking the other night. Between us, like 35 years of work since I finished school and Jess finished uni to buy where we are now. It's only little. It's by no means the, you know, it's not really significant in what we're doing with the cattle, but it's home now and it's we're building a house and, yeah, it's great. It's a great motivator to push on and, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, and my first thoughts are we're so grateful. We've been given so many amazing opportunities and met some, so many amazing people that have helped us along our journey. And it's really nice to see your hard work pay off. I think getting, in, getting into ag can be quite difficult. I'm from the city, I'm not from the country. Um, and Code's grandparents farmed, but he wasn't born to inherit a farm. And, you know, a lot of the time you get negativity saying you can't do it, it's too hard. But we've, we've certainly done it. I think that's probably our motivator, isn't it, when someone tells you you can't do something, <laughs> to um, just go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah, because you don't hear of many people these days buying into farming. It's pretty much all inherited or succession these days yeah it is and we you know we everything we're doing with a farm we're doing in partnership we've got a couple of partnerships you know and like Jess said we are so grateful for the people that we've met along the way originally we started out at many peaks with the Metcalfs and they're fantastic people and they gave us great opportunity out there both from my point of view learning learning the paddock and learning how to you know how to manage a cattle operation and then also with support to Jess from from the Bovitech point of view, you know, they, so people, we've got so many people that past, present um, mentors and that have really helped us. And obviously now with the ag thing, having partnerships gives us a bit of an ability to scale, which I think is important. We just want to grab opportunities as they, as they present. And we feel like we're in a good spot now. Yeah. The cattle market isn't being particularly kind at the moment but we're in this for the long haul so yeah it's we've been very lucky with the people along the along the way that have helped us and um yeah like Jess said we're very grateful. So elaborate a bit more on on your journey I mean you said what 35 years between the two of you since you finished your education this has been a dream how did it become the reality? Well, I guess it started out with um, the opportunity to lease a block, and again, that was in in partnership with a with a good good friend, um, or good friends because there's two of them. Yeah, so probably originally we sort of thought, oh, well, we don't really we don't really want to lease. You're sort of just running someone else's country, and and you're not building any equity in the land. But we very quickly realised that that's a fantastic way to get your foot in the door if you don't have the capital to buy something. Um, at least you can put your, your cash into buying the stock, as long as you do your sums on it. 
when we started talking about it, a lot of Jess's clients that have significant land parcels now, you know, they all say, oh, well, that's how we started. You know, we started, you know, we had a bit of country here and a bit of country there. And, and we, and the reality is really like beggars can't be choosers. We had to, that's how we had to, there was no other way. I mean, we had a bit of capital there and, but we sunk that very quickly into cattle yards and just trying to get the wheels turning. So, uh, yeah, it was quite motivating to have Jess come home over an evening and sort of say, well, so-and-so that is a client who, who's now got 600 cows. Well, he started and he had lease blocks and he's built his way up. And so there was always that carrot on a string, I suppose, that we went, well, maybe that is, you know, maybe that is what we need to do. And yeah, people are good people are everything. And we feel like we've been blessed with the people that we've had along the way. So you've had your own farm now for just over 12 months. How has it, has it been running your own operation? At Metcalfs, I learnt the paddock and I learnt how to manage the paddock. Well, now, we're, you know, I'm sort of over a morning, I might, my first job in the morning might be sit down for a couple of hours, make some phone calls and emails and, well, that's not, in my mind, I've always done labour type work. So unless I'm out working, I don't feel like I'm working. So that's taken some getting used to, you know, to not be sitting at the table feeling anxious that I'm not, especially if the sun's out, it's a good day, oh, I could be fencing, it could be. So, yeah, that's taken, taken some getting used to. And obviously, I've always worked for a wage. So now with what we're doing from the ag point of view, it's a lumpy cash flow. So I've had to, you know, it's taken some getting used to to sort of plan that, how that's going to work. And obviously Bovitech comes into that, doing some heavy lifting throughout the year when, you know, we're not really deriving any, any income off the farm until we sell. We've got something to sell, you know. So, but in, in also it's very exciting to now have control of decisions that I never had control of before. As a business owner, you spend a lot more time in the office than you expect that you would <laughs> than actually doing fun stuff out in the field. But, but that's been great, learning, learning that together. So why was this the dream for you guys? I mean, Jess, you're from the city originally and everything. Why was it to have your own farm? What inspired it? God, what else would you do? It's just such a beautiful part of the world to live. Yeah, you know, you're outdoors, you're working with stock, you're working with great people, like-minded people, such a healthy lifestyle. You know, you're active. And, I mean, Albany is just a stunning part of the world, isn't it? You guys must have saved very hard to buy your own place. <laughs> yeah, we did. We've also got some significant debt too now, which is a pretty good <laughs> motivator too to get up in the morning and go to work. Kelgan cattle farmer Cody Schilling, and you also heard from his wife, Jess Schilling, who is a livestock vet. And they were catching up with Sophie Johnson. 10 to 1 here on The Country Hour. Australia's bee breeders are calling on the government and industry to help fund a breeding program for varroa mite-resistant queen bees. The call comes as the destructive pest is being detected in more and more hives all over New South Wales. Authorities and industry are contemplating shifting the battle from eradication to more of a management approach. Richard Sims is president of the Australian Queen Bee Breeders Association. He's meeting with Queensland's Agriculture Minister and has reached out to several other states to support a breeding program he estimates will cost about $200,000 a year. If we don't get this program up and running now, while we're on the, on the front foot, it'll end up that we'll be like America and New Zealand now, where when they first had mice, they started with a chemical program instead of also using genetically modified bees. And what's happened now is that the poisons don't work. 
that effectively on the rower mite anymore. So they're having to use more and more poison just to control the mites. So if we can get this up and running, this will save us having to get more chemicals into our food chain. So setting up a, a queen bee breeding program, what are some of your ideas about how this might work and how um, these bees could be protected and how you can make sure that the ones you import don't have diseases on them? So what we really want to import is the um, semen from the drones. It's a lot easier. It saves us having to use a quarantine facility in Victoria. Once we get the semen, we artificially inseminate that into our queens. And then from there on, the program begins. And then the program needs to be based in a temperate climate. So it's like more in Queensland or somewhere like that where it's uh, the breed earlier and then say in South Australia or Victoria but also once the breeding program is up and running the bees have to be farmed out to other beekeepers who are willing to record results and be involved in the program because it's no good if the bees is great in Queensland and it does nothing in Victoria so the bee has to be bred to work all over Australia because it's an Australian-wide program. It's a huge undertaking, but it's something that needs to be done and now is the time to do it before it becomes desperate. Has anything like this been done or talked about before? There has been Queen Bee programs run before. None like this. This has to be done or we're going to be in a horrible mess very soon. How do people collect semen from bees or drones? drones? Very carefully. <laughs> no, it's done under a microscope. I'm looking at the setup here. How am I going to say this on the radio? You have to kill the drone to get him to express the parts that you need. What's the next step for trying to establish this queen bee breeding program? I understand you're, you're meeting with the Queensland Agriculture Minister? Yes, so we're having a meeting with him. Hopefully we'll convince him to who, um, talk to some people to get us some funding. We're also trying uh, some different avenues of sourcing funding for this because, as I said, this will take quite a, quite a bit of money uh, and, it'll, and it will be ongoing because the gene isn't recessive. So uh, we'll need to keep importing stock every year to uh, keep up with everything. So once it's started, it'll be going on forever and I think I said before that people in America are telling us that there's no point in going down the chemical way. You need a chemical and a biological the queen bee breeding program together so we don't end up in their situations. Like it it's so important that we don't end up chemical reliant because it doesn't end well. Australian Queen Bee Breeders Association President Richard Sims with Eliza Bellage. If you want to see queen bee breeding in action, rural reporter Sophie Johnson has put together a video showing the process. There's quite a bit to it. So go and check it out on the ABC Rural Facebook page. Five minutes to one. Let's get into this week's wool market results now. The Eastern Market Indicator is down four cents to close at 1,127 cents a kilogram clean. 
And here in the West, the Western Market Indicator is up this week, up 15 cents to finish the week on 1,285 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, can you run through the market details? Great result for the Fremantle market when you look between the three centres in Australia is the last centre trading this week. We certainly had enjoyed the full rise of a market as we went into the second day. In Fremantle, 17 micron were quoted up 50 cents clean. I would suggest that it could be 70 to 80 cents in places. It quoted at 16.90 on the close. 18 micron up 35, 15.20 when finished. 19, 14.20, that was up 25. 20 microns, 13.35, that was up 30 for the week. 21s up 15, 12.90 on the close. 22s up five to close at 12.50. Very interesting point about the market this week, even though we were the last centre trading, as I said, and enjoyed a lift late on the second day, we have finished higher in all microns, 18 through to 22 micron, higher than the eastern states. Now, that is a fairly rare event. If we look at it, if you put all the wools into a bag and shook them up between the three centres, Fremantle averaged a dollar thirty greasy better than our other centres, that's $240 for every bar that was offered across the floor in Fremantle. So a great result for the Fremantle market. Pieces and bellies, slightly cheaper on the first day, slightly dearer on the second day. But given the fleece market has enjoyed those rises, that has increased that spread in price between the pieces and fleece. As I was mentioning last week, that had narrowed down to fairly low levels historically. That did open up somewhat, so it's a good result again for the fleece wool. Oddments, however, 15 cheaper for the week on lock stains and crutchings. Lambs, if we're talking washing lambs, so we're looking at 0.1, 0.2 VM. Very good result on those, fully firm for the week. If we get the VMs at 0.3, they're still being included in washes. Once we get above that, we'll start to see the discounts come through. So a very sound result across um, Fremantle in particular this week in the wool trade. Another interesting point. For the past in rate, first time I can remember in an extremely long time that Fremantle only passed in 3% of its offering, where Melbourne 5.5 and Sydney 7.5. So good to be the centre of the universe. <laughs> Who were the buyers this week, Danny? There's certainly no surprise in the buyers. PJ Morris taking 16.5% of the Merino fleece will on offer. TNU 13.5%, Endeavour will export 12%, Tech will 10%. If we look at Merino skirtings, not too good to notice that Endeavour Wools and Tech will the top one or two spots in the, the skirtings as well. And Oddments Tech will trading second largest buyer. But uh, again, we're just seeing those normal buyers come through driving this wool market. Um, with the absence of a few of those larger ones, Sequoia and Mellower, who are the Chinese-backed companies, but um, they were certainly in and about, but a fairly good spread of competition, in particular in Fremantle. All right. What can we expect for next week then? We've got Sydney-Melbourne Fremantle, two-day sale in each centre. Bodes very well, I'd suggest, for the market, just given the way we finished. Fremantle only has 6,500 bales on offer this week, so if there are orders floating around the Fremantle market, I would suggest that we should enjoy a reasonably good market again. Albeit, just give this dollar, keep the dollar heading south, because interesting to note, if you look at the Eastern market indicator in US terms, that dropped 13, so it was cheaper for these um, overseas processors to buy wool and dearer in Australian dollar terms for our farmers. It doesn't get better than that. Danny, thank you so much for going through those details. Appreciate that.
It is about, well, 30 seconds away from the news at one and then the world today, where you will hear about efforts to save an ancient species of fish off Tasmania's west coast. What does this mean for the salmon industry? And Australia's biggest super fund facing federal court action from the corporate watchdog for allegedly failing to consolidate 90,000 member accounts. Good to talk to you today. It's time for the latest ABC News, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.